I, um, I feel like tonight we have a cool uh, opportunity, a little bit more intimate of a group uh, here at the second gathering, um, lieu of Thanksgiving and uh, certainly some uh, things happening here in our culture. So I, I just, I'm going to approach tonight a little bit differently, um, even this service differently than we did the first. I hope that's cool. I, I want to, um, I don't know, I want to try to break through some barriers uh, with us uh, interpersonally that, that maybe, um, maybe this opportunity affords us. So is that cool with you guys? I want to, I want to, I don't know, even just kind of take it a little bit step further, um, be a bit more interactive uh, here tonight. Uh, There's a lot here, and uh, I want to kind of build some context. This is where we ended last week. We were talking about the power of God's love, and this is God passing before Moses. Here's what he says. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What I asked you guys last week is this question. Does God mean it when he says that he loves? Uh, This is a troubling question for many of you, right? Because you're like, there's no way a loving God would do X, Y, Z. There's no way a God uh, who loves us would uh, allow me to go through this, et cetera, et cetera. It's a game changer when you believe that God means what he says when he says that he loves. Now, all of this is in response to these Israelites who have been complete idiots, okay? Uh, Moses goes up, Grandpa Moses goes up, and while he's away on Mount Sinai, the Israelites build a golden calf. He comes down, God tells them sin is happening. He breaks the tablets in two, kind of as a symbolic nature that this covenant has now been broken. And this is all in response to what God now is doing with this broken covenant. Well, tonight we shift gears. We only studied half of chapter 34 in Exodus last week because... There was so much in the first half, and there's an insane amount in the second half. The whole premise of this second half of chapter 34 is all centered around the word countenance. When you hear the word countenance, uh, what do you think of? What does it mean? Countenance. Okay, face. That's right. Anything else? Like kind of of your posture, you know, like what, what, what you do, what you look like in certain situations. Adults certainly carry with them a certain level of countenance, but babies babies really have a distinct countenance. Like, we're, we're drawn to the countenance of babies. So let's look at a few. Here's one. This is the uh, I need to poop countenance, um, kind of like the constipation. Uh, some of you guys, all those cupcakes, you'll be making this same face later. Uh, next uh, slide. Uh, this is the, um, this is like the gladiator speech uh, baby countenance, okay? Uh, pretty, pretty powerful there. Or whistling for the first time, one of the two. Uh, naked. And next uh, slide. Uh, this is the like bitter milk face, um, as it were. Uh, pretty, pretty solid. I, I love the facial expression and the teefers there, as we call our kids. This next one, I'm curious if you guys have ever uh, experienced this. Uh, next slide here. This is, uh, you know, it's kind of the... <clears throat> and every once in a while, right, like as adults, we, we encounter this, right? Or um, things are just going incorrectly. We have a bad cold. We're sobbing uncontrollably. And then we, we literally blow a bubble out of our nostril. And it breaks the cry, doesn't it? Because you're like, this is somewhat miraculous. I need to hold on to this moment. I've just blown a bubble out of my snot. Next and final slide. Uh, this is the, uh, it's, it's kind of like, it's lame countenance, you know? Like, seriously, you put me in a hat and a diaper and took a picture of me naked? Like, what's, you know, what's the deal with this? This is horribly confusing. Um, all of you guys have uh, a general countenance about you. Uh, in other words, like, uh, especially those of you who are friends with one another, right? Like, you, you can kind of already picture the countenance of your friends, like what they generally look like. Um, it, you know sometimes w- when you say something, what they're going to do, if, you know, on their face. Like, we just know each other like that. And so uh, tonight talks about a different kind of countenance, uh, a powerful countenance. And so let's look at that together here in Exodus 34. So open your Bibles to Exodus 34. Uh, I want to um, read a long section here for us at the beginning uh, because it's going to encompass a lot of things that are happening and then we'll attack uh, like a ravenous wolf uh, the rest of this text here. So is that appropriate, ravenous wolf? I don't, is that okay? All right, good. Here we go. Let's start in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read all the way to verse 26 and uh, we'll end powerfully here. You shall not make, verse 17, for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the, in the month of Abib, 
all of your favorite months of the year. From the month Abib, you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of, excuse me, cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if it will not redeem it, shall break its, its neck. That's encouraging. And all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, the fourth commandment. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Powerful, right? I love the ad here. I have some farmers who are unbelievable in my family. Heidi's whole side of her family, my wife, are all farmers. And like harvest time is critical. Like you got to go now. And I love the note, even in harvest, even when you're gathering on the seventh day, you shall rest. Verse 22, you shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering on, uh, at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out, verse 24, nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until morning. And all of your favorite, verse 26, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Amen. Okay. Um, now, here, here's, here's why I want to read all this together and summarize. Is there is one streamlined focal point of every one of these um, code covenants, we would call them. In other words, some of these things that we just read are part of the Ten Commandments, and others of these things were in uh, chapters 20 to 23 in Exodus as God was going through the, the rules and structure of how these people were to live. So I want to show you this powerfully. Next slide. Everything in the yellow is where these verses were at in Exodus, okay? So the point of all this is, is it's all repeated, Okay? You've seen verse 17 there. It's in Exodus 20, verse 4 and 18. You can see the reference. Next slide. I mean, this just keeps going on and on. Every one of these things we just read are referenced previously in Exodus. Next slide. The summary there of 22 to 24 found in Exodus 23. And finally, uh, and lastly, you shall boil. Uh, next slide. The, your, mother's, uh, your mother's milk there found in Exodus 23, verse 19. So as you're wondering and as you should be wondering, what in the world is the point? Right? Like, like, what's going on here? This is somewhat confusing. I'm, I'm disconnected already. Um, the point is this. God does not compromise. I told you guys last week, he would have every reason at this point, if he desired, to lower the bar. His people have proven they can't follow it. And so God, you would think, maybe would like, all right, listen, all these people, they're distant. They're not obeying. They're idiots. They're morons. If I, just, if I lower the bar, then maybe, just maybe, they'll be able to, you know, appease me. Maybe they'll be able to follow me. If God was interested in appeasing man and not his own glory, that's what he would have done. Um, but thankfully for us, whether we want to thank him for it or not, God is about his glory. He's about himself. He's about his exaltation. And so because of that, he's a God that does not compromise. Uh, you and I, morons, idiots at times, and yet he keeps the standard at himself. Well, why is this? So that a savior is needed, so that a God is needed. If not, then we would just need each other. You would just need you, and I would just need me. And I'm thankful tonight that I get to live a life where I don't need myself. I'm thankful that I get to need, like a blind beggar, the one who is worth needing. So the point of all of this rhythm is that God doesn't lower the bar. Like, Moses comes back, and what does he communicate? The exact same things he's already communicated. God hasn't changed his mind. Okay? You're still not to, you know, boil a goat in its mother's milk, right? Like, that's still the deal. And maybe it seems weird, but that's where, that's where God is. He's a God of no compromise. It's beautiful. Here's what happens in verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, when I was growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood where I could just go wherever, okay? I don't know about you guys. Did any of you guys... Did any of you guys grow up in a neighborhood where you could just ride your bike, go wherever, it didn't matter, okay? Play ball wherever, okay. Four of us, this is the perfect, okay. Um, so uh, literally, I, I, I would just ride my bike, I would get a soda from the soda machine at the firehouse down the road, um, you know, I would go across major highways. I was seven years old, all right? My parents were just like, whatever, but here was their one deal. When we blow the whistle, you better make darn sure you hear that whistle, and it's dinner time, so you better, you better come in for dinner, right? So I knew I could only go as far as I could hear the whistle. 
Did some of you guys have something like this? Like, I've heard of bells, you know, I've heard of, you know, like cathedral. Like, I've heard of all kinds of things, okay? For me, it was a whistle. Now, if my parents set up that structure, and then they blew the whistle, and I'm riding my bike, and I hear it, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm sure I could show up half an hour late. And then I show up a half an hour late, and my parents are like, no big deal. In fact, uh, tomorrow... We're going we're gonna to back it up a half an hour. Clearly, uh, you know, you need to kind of make some ruckus around the neighborhood. You need to, you know, hey, boys be boys. So we're just going to back it up a half an hour. So then the next day, what if uh, they blew the whistle half an hour later than the previous day? And I was like, yeah, I, I'm just, man, I'm just really enjoying my time out here. Uh, I, I remember, like, going over to my neighbor's house and, wa- and watching Gremlins for the first time as a seven-year-old, which still has messed me up, Okay. <laughs> Like, that's one movie I can never, ever watch is Gremlins. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, oh, Mom, I'm just watching Gremlins. I'll show up another half an hour late. What if this pattern continued? What if my parents continued to lower the bar until finally, like, at 10 o'clock, I'm coming in for dinner? I think all of you would ask the same question I would. What kind of parents would those be? What kind of love would that be given? Right? Um, maybe some of you guys were amazing at the negotiation tactic with your parents when you guys were growing up, right? So they would start out like, hey, you're grounded for three weeks, and by the end of the conversation, you were grounded for 10 minutes, right? And like somehow, it was like, you th- like right, your parents thought they were meeting in the middle, and actually, like, you just did a phenomenal job of making your case. But at the end of the day, it's, it's like, what kind of leadership is that? If God did that, what kind of leader, what kind of God, what kind of intense lover would he be like personally not one that I would want to follow and yet by all of our lives we act as if we would rather have that God listen we live like we would rather live and exist under a compromising God right you show this by your life you start beating your fist at God's commands flipping him off when it's convenient for you when you want to turn your back on him and run away Does this not bother anyone else? We should thank the Lord that he's a God who doesn't compromise, right? So God says, write down all of these things. So, verse 28, beautiful, insane, check this out. He was there with the Lord, how long? 40 days and 40 nights, okay? Like, I know some of you guys read every Christian book that has, like, numerical equations in it because you love that, right? And so, you know, five is in Revelation one time, and because it's connected with, because my favorite verse is Matthew 25, 5, and I have a tat of 5 on my shoulder blade, I bet the Lord is going to come back on, you know, May 5th. Right? I mean, right, we have this, like, weird, like, equations that we do in Christendom with numbers. 40 days and 40 nights, admittingly, is a very significant numerical value in the Bible, okay? Uh, 40 days and 40 nights is also the amount of time that Jesus... Uh, fast in the desert before Satan comes. So let's look and see what Moses was doing for 40, night, uh, 40 days, 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And, and this is Grandpa Moses, like, dude needs to eat, okay, right? So, so what's happening here? Is he, like, calling his, you know, assistant Joshua for delivery, you know? Hey, man, God isn't providing much up here, right? Can you bring me up a kosher pizza kind of thing? Like, like what's, what's going on where, where God, a few of you will get that later maybe, um, but, but like, what's going on that, that is sustaining Moses? I think it's much in the same way as Jesus. Like, like, God is showing Moses that literally all he needs is him. So I don't think Moses is, is eating other things outside of bread or water. I think for those 40 days and 40 nights, God is supernaturally providing everything that Moses needs in himself. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And he wrote, did God on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, God and Moses. Now look at this verse 29, and our dramatic story takes a massive twist. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, look at this, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So apparently, Moses starts coming down the mountain. Grandpa Moses, 80-plus-year-old Moses, right? Like, like, you know, he's got a metal hip or something. He's coming down Mount Sinai, and his face apparently is shining. He's been in the glory of God for 40 days and 40 nights, and apparently, there's some kind of radiance that's coming off of him, and the Scripture says he doesn't know it, right? Well, many of you guys know that it's, it's beard season, and... Um, uh, 
I, for the very first time, am, am trying to establish some sort of facial activity here. And, and you know, it's kind of coming in. I don't know. Uh, I had someone come up to me last week, and they're like, I finally feel like you're a man. I didn't know how to take that. So I just said, thank you. Um, but but, but it's like, like all of a sudden now I'm getting, st- st- you know, stuff stuck in there. And I've never experienced this before. You know, I've had my thing for a while, but, but you know, like I'll, I'll like like a three-inch green pepper will just be hanging in my beard, you know, for hours, right, until someone finally tells me, hey, you got a, you got a green pepper on your face, you know? It's like woven in your beard. It's just weird, right? We almost get this impression like that, that people had to tell Moses that his face was shining because the Scripture says he didn't know himself. So it begs the question, why doesn't Moses notice that his face is shining? Like, what is happening here? That he wouldn't see the, the gleam. Well, well, maybe it's because mirrors looked a little bit different then than they do now. Like, he didn't, like, pull a mirror out of his cloak, you know, before he goes down to talk to the people, like, how's things looking here? Like, th- that didn't happen, okay? But I think, actually, the larger answer is that this now has become the new normal for Moses. Like, he doesn't notice the effect of God's glory on his life because it has become the new normal. In other words, there's no other option for Moses. He has been in the presence of God, and that presence has had an effect on his countenance, on every facet of him, on his life, on his heart. It's become the new normal. And so other people have to see it in him because in his humility, there's no other option than to radiate the glory of God from his life. It's beautiful. It's the new normal. Unfortunately for many of us, for many of you, A normalcy as it pertains to going into the presence of God is very abnormal. For you, as it were, to radiate the glory of God would be a strange thing. So much so that your friends notice it like, whoa, hey, what happened to you, buddy? Right? Like, settle down. Instead of that being like the new normal for you. Settle down. Like, you've been telling me that for a month now. That's right. Because you can't pipe me down. There's too much joy. There's Listen. I've told you guys this before. If I would have listened to every voice in my life that told me to pipe down, that told me to simmer down, that told me to be quiet, that told me to, you know, bind myself up, I'm serious. At 13, 14, 15 years old, that long ago, if I would have listened to those people that said I'm too wild or I'm too this or I'm too that, my faith would like be in this little ball shaped by man instead of shaped by the Lord. And I love the fact that this for Moses has now just become the new normal. Look, I'm in the presence with God. I don't even notice that my face is shining because that's just what happens when you're with God. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I want to ask you, how far away from that reality do do you seem, do you feel, where the new normal would be a radiating face, a radiating body, a a radiating speech, all because you were experiencing the glory of God? Verse 30 says, look at this. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him, right? So, like, picture Moses. He's excited. He's just met with God. He comes down, and people are walking away from him, right? Have you ever experienced this, right? And you're like, what, you know, know, checking his deodorant, you know, am I somewhat gassy today? Like, why are you you walking away? Have you guys ever had the experience where you're, like, talking to a group of friends, and then someone, like, kind of, you know, like, friend bombs the circle, and then everyone leaves, right? And then they're kind of like, what did I do? What did I say, right? It's kind of weird. It's that kind of moment for Moses. He's excited. Like he can't wait to share with, with all these folks what God has told him again. And people leave. But, verse 31, Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned, and Moses talked with them. Here's what I think is happening. Um, do you remember when Jesus walked on the water and the disciples thought they saw a ghost, Right? The disciples are so savvy and intelligent, right? They're like, they're looking out. Is that Jesus, right? Is that the, the ghost of Jesus past walking on the water, right? So, so I, I think there's an element of this in, in this story where maybe Moses comes down and whatever is coming from his face, whatever radiance, whatever shine, whatever glow, like whatever's happening, we don't have the specifics. I think some of these people think like maybe Moses died up there. And just by sheer age, it's a likelihood, right? Like, good chance up and down. He's been a few times now. Like, maybe God just wiped him out. So when Moses calls for them back, I think there's maybe an element that, okay, he's, he's not dead. He's not gone. Okay, so Moses calls to them, and everyone returns, 
and he talks with them. He tells them, and in verse 32, powerful. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Now, here's where I want to just spend some time together. Okay. Here's the temptation for Moses. Lessen the blow from God to make sure that he wins some friends. Lessen the message. Make God out to sound compromising as if he were a mediator between two parties. Hey, look, so uh, God looked at all of your debauchery, and, and here's what he's come to. He's going to go ahead and, and, you know, give a little. If you guys will give a little, maybe we can meet in the middle. But Moses doesn't do that. Um, let me say it kindly and gently and hopefully lovingly. Moses isn't interested primarily in making friends. Now, I've really wrestled all my years of ministry with that statement uh, because, thankfully, I've been graced um, to have a lot of great relationships and uh, was a football player on a campus that saw revival. And, like, I, I didn't have to <clears throat> release friends uh, or love Jesus. Like, I wasn't, like, picking and choosing. But the balance is when your heart has resolved to be okay for the glory of God, even if it dismisses possible relationships, it's amazing then the relationships that grow and build. You guys get that? Here's what I've learned. Non-believers, they long to be around respectable people. Have you guys seen this? Like someone who does not believe, they absolutely long to be around respectable people. Well, respectable people are those who are fighting for something. Respectable people are people who aren't people of compromise. Are you guys with me? So the thing that you think you're doing in lessening the gospel or cheapening the message so that maybe it will appease to more masses, that maybe you won't lose friends over Christ, actually what you're doing is you're causing the non-believer to view you as someone who compromises. And if they view you as someone who compromises, then they think that your God does too. And then interestingly, the thing that you say you want in appeasing man, you actually do the opposite of. What I've learned is the harder stance I take for the power of the gospel and the deeper I communicate the truths of the gospel in love, it actually builds relationships with non-believers quickly. Now, yes, some are going to say, Mark, I hate you. I never want to be around you. You know, like, that's always going to be the case. But by majority, what my experience has been, when I live a life of no compromise, my relationships with non-believers grow because they respect that in me. And so I'm just looking at you right now. Moses has every opportunity at this point to come and play the mediator, lessen the story, lessen the command, and see where it plays out, but he doesn't. He says exactly what God wants him to say because he knows it's not his message to share. It's the Lord's. This is what you bear, people. Like you bear on your lips and on your heart the message of God. It's not your story. You just get to be a part of it. You don't have to get creative. Like, I remember going to a youth conference. This is a bad idea in general, okay? I remember going to a youth conference where the whole premise of the conference was teaching us creative ways to evangelize, right? And so then you take a balloon with helium, and you, you know, you suck the helium so it changes your voice, and you talk about how, you know, God can change hearts, and then you pop the balloon in their face and tell them they're going to hell if they don't believe, right? It's like, what? What kind of crap is this, right? Like... Weird, weird stuff, like all these creative ways. Listen, I really believe in my heart that the message of the gospel is powerful in and of itself. And I feel like for you sometimes, it's like you always have to reach so that creatively you can communicate the power of the truth or the reality of Jesus. When what Moses does, take some cues, take some cues from, is he just shares exactly what the Lord told him. Here, 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 here's what it is, okay? And here's what happens after that verse 33 says, when Moses had finished speaking with him, this is crazy, look at this. He put a veil over his face. Now, th this seems like an odd-fashioned move, right? So, so you've got like a radiating some kind of, you know, very bright face, and now your next move is to, to put a veil on it. So it's like, what's going on in the thought process here, Moses? 
You know, as Aaron pulled him aside, like, hey, dude, um, it's really tough to talk to you when your face is like the surface of the sun, okay? Do us all a favor, right? Why don't you just cover that thing up? Help us all out. We'll listen a little bit better. Uh, like, like, what happened in the process where Moses feels like he needs to put the veil on? We're going to see some clues for this in a later New Testament text. So I'm going to leave that for now. But here's what verse 34 says. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what, what, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses again, that the skin of Moses was shining, uh, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So this like, put on the veil, remove it again, do this, do that. It's kind of strange, right? So here's my question. Is this what we're to do? Like if we're just taking this face value, pun intended, right? If we're just, if we're, if we're, if we're just taking this uh, in the way of the scripture, okay, okay, okay. So I go meet with God um, and Jesus says, you know, it's better when I do that alone. And so I'm going to go meet with God in my closet. And then I'm going to come in. I'm going to walk around with a veil around my face. And then when I go, like, is this, is this the practice? Is this, is this what we're to do? Well, thankfully, this entire story is talked about in great detail in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes a, uh, a letter to the church in Corinth, and he addresses this exact issue. And my friends, it is unbelievable. Okay? So for those of you guys with your scripture, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7 and see the power of these two stories unite. God is a God of no compromise. Moses carries with him a countenance of no compromise, his face shining. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7. This is crazy. Now if the ministry of death... Hold on a second. The ministry of death is the old covenant. It's what we're learning about right now in Exodus. Paul calls the old covenant Moses' ministry the ministry of death. How's that for a term of endearment, right? Like like if Paul and Moses showed up sometime, yeah, dude, you ministered a ministry of death. Like how do you feel about that? Moses would agree. Why is the old covenant summarized by the Old Testament a ministry of death? Here's why. Because over and over and over, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, uh, the Covenant Code, all of it proves over and over and over that man cannot obey God. And so all of man's efforts are futile and therefore lead to death. It is a ministry of death. The law is binding. They can't follow the law. And so they are forever condemned to death. Now if the ministry of death, Paul says with a smile, carved in letters on stone, look at this came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Well, the ministry of the Spirit is talking about the new covenant. Definition of terms. The new covenant. A sinless Savior was placed on a bloody cross as our perfect Passover lamb or perfect sacrifice because of that sacrifice and more specifically the fact that he conquered death three days later happy Easter everyone and then his spirit resides in believers the promises the covenant is the new covenant is is through the blood of Christ the life of Jesus the resurrection of Christ and his future coming again we are reconciled or have right relationship with God that's the new covenant the premise of the old covenant is you're my people, I'm your God, follow this law. And the people over and over and over said, we can't with our life. And what Jesus says in the new covenant is, I'm going to do what all of you people couldn't. I'm going to fulfill it in myself. I'm going to follow the law. I'm going to be the sacrifice myself. I'm going to do it all myself for my glory. Okay, That's the new covenant. So what Paul is saying is this. Is if the ministry of death carried with it tremendous glory that it would cause Moses' face to change, how much more then is the new covenant? In other words, the effect that the new covenant has on people who believe in Christ and the blood that was spilt and the empty tomb, the glory and the glorious effect on those people, how much greater is it? For verse 9, if there, was a, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, how's that? Like he's, just, he's really heaping on the compliments, right? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, 
the ministry of righteousness much far exceeded in glory. Now, righteousness is something that God requires to be in relationship. But you and I are born sinners. I talk about this all the time. My kids, born sinners. They seem precious. They seem sweet. They seem, and they lie, and they cheat, and they tattletale, and they have way too many suckers, right? Right, like, they're born sinners, okay? So many of you guys, you seem so nice and so sweet and so precious, right? And apart from Christ, you're nothing. You're destined to death. You're destined to death. And so what he's saying here is like, look, in this powerful ministry of righteousness, there's something different. Righteousness is ours in Christ. Nothing righteous that we have done because of Christ. We have reconciled relationship with God, and it far exceeds the old in glory. Indeed, he says in verse 10, in this case, what once had glory has now come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The old covenant had glory for a season. Now the new far surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more uh, will what is permanent have glory. The, The old covenant had a season. It had a time. It had an expiration date. The new covenant doesn't. It's eternal. It's forever. What we believe in Christ is forever. In verse 12, and this is where I really want to spend a lot of our time. Since we have such a hope, we are very, what does the word say? We're very bold. No, no, no. Um, um, I've really, really struggled with this all my life. Here's why. Um, you and I's definition of bold is very different, and you and your friend's definition of bold is very different. But what this uh, passage says is that because we have this hope, in other words, because we have the ministry of, of righteousness in Christ, then what that means is we have hope, and because we have hope, then we have a boldness. We have it. I struggle then because I, I, I see a lot of cowardice I see a lot of lack of boldness. When I think of boldness, I think about Stephen, uh, who is uh, getting ready to die. In fact, more specifically, he's being stoned to death. So he's taking stones off of his face. Uh, the ancient practice of stoning is you would put uh, the, the stone knee, okay, in, in, a, in, a, in a hole in the ground. And then everyone who was stoning them would pick up stones, and you would be looking down at the person you were killing so as this is happening, as Stephen is taking stones off his, of his face, the scripture records him praying for those who are stoning him, in fact, specifically asking God to forgive them, much like Jesus on the cross. That, I would say, is bold, right? Now it puts our life into perspective a wee bit, doesn't it? Do you consider yourself bold? In other words, because of the hope that you have, because of your experience with the Lord and the glory that is far surpassing the old covenant, because of all of those things, do you consider yourself bold? Do you consider yourself to have a countenance of no compromise? Do you consider yourself to be a person, the kind of believer that isn't interested in pleasing man above God, but that is desperately interested to do, follow, adhere to whatever the Lord would have with your life. So if we just go by percentages, um, the reality is it seems like um, most of believers are are in the corner with their dunce hat on, right? That that there's like a few that are kind of leading out. And I'm not just talking about pastors or communicators or, no, just like just people that seem to, you know, love the Lord, are, are, are leading out in boldness, and the rest of us kind of, in our cowardice, like riding on their coattails. When what the scripture says is, is we together in Christ, we have this boldness. Well, why do we have it? Because we already have victory. Like, the glory is already ours in Christ. The righteousness is already ours. The need for reconciliation with God is already ours. So I just want to ask every single one of you guys, as lovingly and as hope-filled as I possibly can be, where is the boldness? Where is the countenance in the life of no compromise? Listen, 
How has the interest of appeasing men, how has that gained you anything? It provides a phenomenal facade, doesn't it? It like, man, it gives this sex appeal that it's going to provide you every relationship and everything you could ever want. And then you compromise and appease man again. And what does it get you? Absolutely nothing. 30-second notoriety. A few relationships that are gone tomorrow. I love the fact that in Christ, it comes with it a certain sense of boldness because the victory is already ours, right? So this goes on, and this is going to get beautiful. He says, not like Moses, okay? So we are very bold, not like Moses. I, I mean, I would consider Moses pretty bold, right? Like, I mean, the, you do, he, he seems like a no compromising kind of guy, but Paul's like, as bold as Moses is, like we in Christ have something so much deeper, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Hello. Now we get some indication. Why did he put the veil on? Maybe because Aaron said, look, dude, you got a green pepper on your beard. But also, also it could have been because Moses is trying to protect the people's view that his face is fading. In other words, the presence of God that was being seen on the face of Moses was fading until his next encounter because the old covenant was fading away. That's certainly what Paul is inferring, so that they might not see what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Now we're talking. Some of the greatest conversations I have with, um, with non-believers in particular is, is um, they'll say things like, okay, Mark, so do you believe I can experience true love? Right? And it's like it comes from a Hallmark card or something. It's like a puppy and a cat on the front. Um, do you think I can experience true love? Um, and and I'll, I'll respond this way. I think you can experience it, uh, but by definition, the scripture says that God is love. And so that means that, that, that he, by his character like is the full encompassing encounter with, with love. So anything apart from that, that, anything apart from God is not love. Now that's a no compromising answer to a very real biblical definition. And most folks don't want to hear that. Oh, so you're saying I can't experience love? I'm not saying you can't experience, I'm saying you can in Christ, but I'm saying right now you're not. What Moses is saying uh, in the Old Testament and what Paul now affirms is their hearts were hard. Like the Jews that were hearing this, they were hearing that Christ is all-powerful and now can completely take away all your sin. And the Judaizers and the Jews of the day and many others were like, no, the Old Covenant's better. We'd rather put the veil on our face again. And Paul's like, what, what are you talking about? You, you want to put the veil back on like the veil Christ has taken away and that's the only way it can be taken away do you guys remember what it was like to live with a veiled face and do you remember what it was like to taste grace for the first time like can you just remember your salvation for a second what it was like to walk around veiled face like all about you. It was like there were mirrors on the backside of that veil. Your entire existence was about you and your progress and your relationships and your stuff and your clout and your notoriety. And then all of a sudden, you tasted grace and you realized that it was all about him, his glory, his name being made great, loving others. It was beautiful, right? And that's what Moses is saying. That's what Paul is now affirming is that there was a, there was a time where all these hearts are still hardened. So verse 15, he adds to furthest point, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, or the law of the old covenant is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But verse 16 is our hope. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And with the removing of the veil comes boldness. Now. Not theological seminary training, though that will certainly help and aid. Not deep, intense discipleship, though that's a huge blessing. Not participation in lot families or small groups, though that all is incredible. When Christ takes the veil off because of Christ's work for Christ's glory, it brings instantaneously a boldness. 
That's my whole question tonight. Where has it gone then? Like why in the world have all of a sudden we're seeing a whole bunch of Christians who are comfortable and then somehow complacent, literally swimming in rivers of their complacency when they received boldness because they already had victory. Like when you already had victory, when you know the war, the war has already won, like what in the world would put you in the corner with the dunce head on? It makes no sense. That is what Paul is affirming. We have victory in Christ, and when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And now in context, the tat that many of you have, the bumper sticker that many of you threw on your little civic, verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Right? You, many of you guys have heard this verse before, Okay. You got the tat, like it's your, your wallpaper, but now it's in context. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and freedom and boldness beautifully connected. Why? Because there's, there's, no, there's no hindrances, there's nothing holding you back. Where that spirit is, there's freedom, there's boldness, there's joy, there's victory. And that's what I love about verse 18 when he encompasses all of this, and we all, all believers, with unveiled face, come on, no veil, nothing here, nothing protecting, beholding the glory of God, and the word beholding implies the sharp mirror, uh, something very bright to glance at, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, going from the glory of condemnation, or rather the ministry of condemnation, all the way into this glory of the new covenant, which far exceeds that of the old. We're being transformed, we're growing, we're deepening our relationship. There's change that's happening in our life because we're experiencing the Lord and the power of it. For this comes from the Lord who is in the spirit. Now before we do anything else, um, right now there's some of you that feel condemnation because of all this. Because, because you're like, okay, I wanna be bold and I don't know how to be bold. And that's exactly the way I always used to think. I used to think boldness could be taught. So like right now, right? Like I would have one of, you know, a few of you guys come up here and we would like electroshock therapy you, you know? Like, a, you know, attach some like massive electro, electrodes to your ear or your, you know, like, and, and all of a sudden we could shock you enough. And then we could make you go through a 12-step process of, okay, here's what it means to be bold. And I'm fully done with that. What I am fully ready to do tonight, it's not about teaching you how to be bold. It's teaching you to receive what you already have. Boldness comes with the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And for whatever reason, some of you have tucked that back away in the luggage. You've thought that that's only maybe for a few chosen people. But my friends, boldness is ours in Christ. So what puts the veil back on? That's the problem. Next slide. There's some things that veil us. The first is this, <clears throat> a not accepting grace. Christ literally, in his grace, removes the veil so that his radiance can be seen everywhere in us, ambassadors for him. Is it crazy to anyone else that we fight like putting, up, like the veil's gone. That's our reality in Christ. We're like trying to like recover our eyes. We take the gospel and we're like, I know I believed it once or I know it seemed okay at once, but there's no way he could ever really forgive all of these things that I've done. Or this new sin that I'm struggling with, man, that kind of tops the charts. Like surely he won't love me through that or forgive me through that. He won't be gracious. Listen, what you're doing is you're taking the gospel and you're wanting to reform it and you're literally worsening it, crumpling it in a little ball and throwing it in the trash can when what you can receive is full, unwarranted grace over every sin, over everything, over every thought, over every grotesque thing you've ever done. But in not receiving it or accepting it, it binds you up. It, it causes you to desire to put that veil back on, put you in the corner Create this cowardice that your life just exists under and in. And so, so many of you guys are here and, that are experiencing that. And I'm just saying, like, what in the world are you, are you thinking? Like, is it better to live in grace or is it better to, to, like, fight God in receiving it? When God's like, what are you fighting for? 
like receive my love and my grace. I know you want to do it on your own, and I know you want to believe that you can be forgivable, but that's the whole point. You're not, but because of my son, now I can call you a son. So I think for some of you, you've put the veil back on because you haven't received grace. Uh, The next thing that veils us is this, allowing your feeling of being ill-equipped to cripple your love of others. Man, there's, there's no way I can ever do that, like being bold, I don't know, like there's no, there's no way that can ever be me or, you know, to be the, a missionary in my dorm room or to, you know, be a, a person on my sports team that, you know, is, is bold for the gospel. Like all, I'm, I'm just, I'm ill-equipped. You're right. That's the point. When you'll realize that, accept that and watch God absolutely take your heart and run wild. When you finally get to the end of yourself, you stop thinking about yourself so much. It's a beautiful point to be. Like some of you have allowed your ill-equippedness, if that's a word, to cower you. Maybe some of you need to own it now and then rely on Christ to watch him empower you to be the ambassador for him that he's called you to be. It's like we, we battle this like, yeah, but I'm so ill-equipped. We like love to say that because it makes us feel better or something. It gives us an out. Yeah, but I'm just ill-equipped. I'm just ill-equipped for ministry. I'm ill-equipped to be bold. And, and like that becomes our identity. And God's like, you're right, you're really equipped. I told you that. Like, uh, like rely on me. I'm going to give you direction, wisdom, guidance. I'm going to provide everything you've ever needed for you. I'm going to give it to you. Stop talking about yourself and start resting in me. And maybe it's just the mind games that you play, but please, for the love of all that's good and holy, stop thinking about yourself so much. If we would be consumed half as much with the character of God that we are our own, our failures and our successes, I'm telling you, we would see tremendous freedom. We're ill-equipped, yes, so that the power of Christ can be shown through us. Another thing that veils us or puts that veil back on that Paul says that Christ is removed, next slide, is the belief that you're not as bold as others around you, right? Let me, let me make something very, very clear. Um, just because you're not um, boisterous, okay, or outgoing, or, um, you know, just because you, you can't write a song and rock it like Brandon, right, or just because you're not like the captain of this over here, or just because, you know, you can't um, sweat and talk about the Lord like whatever, right? Like, like, just because you're not those things, it doesn't mean that you're not bold. Boldness isn't a personality issue. Boldness is a heart issue, Okay, um, when did we get to the point where, like, comparison drove the church? How did you guys, like, spend a good amount of your time comparing your walk of faith against others? There's a difference between ironing, iron sharpening iron and being jealous and coveting what others have in Christ. Like, be encouraged by your brothers and sisters in their pursuit of the Lord but the reality is many of you in your hearts, you're like, if I could just have that, if I just, I want that, I desire that so bad, and, and it's, just, it's become this, this coveting nature of your heart. And so what's happened in light of that is you put the veil back on your face because all you want is what others have. Again, you're spending your time looking at others and not the Lord. Finally, and probably most significantly, things that veil us is straight a lack of desire. Listen, some of you are completely content not being bold. It's way easier. Way easier. I mean, you can sit in back, you can sit in the weeds. Like the corner, man, like it's, it's pretty comfortable. Doesn't get hot, doesn't get cold over there. It's like fairly, you know, temperature controlled, right? The thermostat's normally in the corner too, right? So you can adjust it up or down, right? Oh, you're never gonna have to be in front There's never a fear of failure. This relationship between comfort and complacency, I'm telling you right now, some of you, you have just lost your desire to be bold. It's not relearning what it is to be bold. It's re-receiving and understanding again what you already have in Christ. I hope you're hearing me. You cannot disconnect boldness from the Lord. It does not work. Because once you have received the grace that comes from Christ, then that means you understand that you are already a victor in Christ, and that bears with it a level of boldness here and now until he comes back or he calls you home. 
But so many of you are like, ah, just, I'll just veil that face. Now, I want to try to get in, in your dome a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, my guess is there, there's a lot of things going on in your heart. Because you're like trying to picture now, okay, so what would boldness look like in my life? Or what relationships am I compromising? Or, or what, would, like, what would all of this look like? I think mostly James summarizes all this. Here's what James chapter 1 says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Okay. So real life. The college lunch table. Right. It, was my fam- it was my favorite place in college. Absolute favorite place. Uh, for multiple reasons. Number one, uh, full buffet, right? Like, that's the best thing about college. So you guys complain about the cast in your dorms. Listen, like, Brandon and I, similar, we'll go eat lunch over there. We're like, this is heaven, okay? This is absolute heaven. This is like all you can eat. They've got ice cream. I mean, it's like a soda machine. I don't have this at home, right? I don't like, have a Pepsi dispenser in my house. This is beautiful, right? It, it was my, no agreement there. That's totally cool. I'll go with it. I'm going to be bold, all right? So, so listen, I would sit at the lunch table in college, right? And at my lunch table, we, like, we, we came to, like, have this crew of, you know, very familiar folks, three or four believers and a whole bunch of not believers. And I absolutely loved the conversation. I absolutely loved the moment. Why? Because every single day, it didn't matter, it gave me an opportunity to dig into the lives of people. In other words, I was consistently on the offense, and the offense was love. I wasn't like, all right, everyone, so what do you guys think about propitiation up in here, right? And the non-believers were like, dude, what kind of cuss word? Like, I, we've never had, heard that cuss word. It sounds really nice, though. What, what, what does that mean, right? It wasn't like dropping theological bombs and then arguing about it with non-believers. Hey, so, you know, what do you guys think about abortion? Or what do you guys, I wasn't asking those questions. I was asking questions about their life. I was being bold by forgetting about myself and waiting for people to come to me and saying, tell me about how school is going for you right now. Like, what's your biggest challenge? And all of a sudden, guess what happens? You start to unearth their heart. And then the boldness that was come in in pursuing relationship and asking questions has now transpired into a boldness as they ask. So, like, tell me about you or what's going on or why are you asking all these things? And then I can say, oh, just because, you know, I'm a really nice person and I really, no. Now I have the chance to be bold about the passion that I have for Christ and what he's done in my life. And I was completely self-centered, but he's done a work. And now in humility, I can pursue you. Many of you guys play sports. Okay. And some of you guys are cheerleaders too. We'll count that. Um, um, Listen. One of your greatest, one of your greatest opportunities is the fact that you spend the same, you spend time with the same people every single day. You work out with the same people, you're on the same, t- I mean, you're just, you're there consistently with the same people. Listen, what more of a softball opportunity do you want? And guess what you're doing? You're the one that's waiting for other people to pursue you. You're the one that's over there sitting in the corner. When you know Christ, you're already a victor. And the last relationship that you built was the person that was another believer that pursued you and you found out you were brothers in Christ and then you came out of your shell. Listen, the gospel isn't a personality issue. The gospel is calling all of us to love one another and celebrate the fact that in Christ we carry with us a countenance of no compromise, a boldness. So are you guys ready for that? Is that what you want? Well, the only way that it happens is in the remembrance of the one who's properly displayed for us what it's like to live with no compromise. There's only one. Christ came and he lived perfectly, a sinless life. And now we have the opportunity, as he directed and guided, to remember his sacrifice, to remember his love, to not ask that he'll teach us about boldness, 
but to ask that he'll free us of the ways that we have put the veil back on our face or our heart. And so tonight, church, as you come and you take a piece of this bread, you're remembering the broken body of Jesus. You're remembering the fact that he was bold in leaving the throne of heaven and coming to live perfectly so that you could have reconciliation with God. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. So tonight we boldly approach a meal of remembrance as we boldly receive yet again what we have in Christ. Church, it's time now. This isn't a rally cry. It's not a motivational speech. It's a remembrance of what you have in Christ. Christians, it's time to come back out of the the curtains. It's time to come back out of your hiding spots. We bear with us a message of love called ambassadors for Christ, letting our face shine bright with the reality of the gospel. Is it deeper than words for you? Is it a reality? Is it a hope? And I'm telling you tonight, we can celebrate just what it is. Not a myth or a fairy tale, but the real story that has really transformed us. And that really tonight can take every single one of us and send us out of these doors. And our workplaces never look the same. Not because we're passing out gospel tracts, but because we're loving people. Sharing the truth of Christ with people. So I want to invite you tonight in a countenance of no compromise. To receive this meal of remembrance. As we thank the Lord for the boldness he's given us in Jesus. Respond when you're ready, church.